Sisters and brothers, the turning point for Reverend Martin Luther King in his life of faith in Jesus Christ and striving for justice in our country happened Friday night, January 27, 1956, at his kitchen table. It was late, and though he was weary from another long day, he couldn't sleep. And then the phone rang. He picked it up to hear an anonymous voice threaten him. Leave Montgomery immediately if you have no wish to die. Weary, anxious, and afraid, he sat at his kitchen table. He says, I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. And the words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. Lord, I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. And Martin Luther King Jr. says, at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. And you know, for him and his family, for Martin Luther King Jr., his life was never easy. He and his family were threatened often. His house was bombed. At his last speech, he shared that he probably wouldn't live long, and he was assassinated a day later. But faith and the cross go together. And Martin Luther King Jr. showed us that. Because not any old faith will do, but a trust in Jesus that follows him into the places of pain and injustice and needing his love, praying his will be done. This is faith that transforms your life. Faith is not just what you think about in your head about God. Faith is participating in the cross of our risen Lord Jesus. And that's what this story in Peter's life with Jesus shows us. And it's a hard revelation to accept. Oh, it starts off pleasing enough. Jesus is with his disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And we like this. Human beings like being able to define Jesus on their own terms. But that's not what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus asked this question on the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi. 
Now, in that day, people believed this to be the entrance to the underworld and the source of all evil. Caesarea Philippi was the gate to the underworld, the gates of hell. And in order to entice the local god there, Pan, to return and to protect the people, they would engage in all sorts of evil acts and demonstrations and perversions to get on Pan's good side. It's there that Jesus asks, who do people say I am? Who do you say that I am? He asks at the place of battle. He asks at the place where sin rules for the moment. He asks where people have their own ideas about how to make it in this world, about how you deal with the supernatural. So who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? This is not an insecure person wondering what others think of him. Jesus is not looking after likes and affirmations. He's not asking the latest opinion poll here. He isn't wondering about his identity. His actions show very well he knows who he is and what he's come to do to redeem the world. When Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? He's not asking for your opinion. He's asking for your allegiance. He's commanding you to follow He's insisting that faith is not a matter of personal choice, but obedience to the one true God standing there before you. It's in that sort of climate, that context, that Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? We have fielded that question. We feel its weight. It comes to us at gravesides or where we recognize our failures or when life is not going the way we hoped it would go. And at the end of the day, it's not what mom and dad believe about Jesus but your own relationship with the Lord that matters. Though mom and dad are chosen by the Heavenly Father to bless you as children with instruction and structure and nurture and belief and practicing life with Jesus, and that's the same with schools and the same with your church family, but you have to answer that question of faith that Jesus asks you. It's a question about true faith in Jesus as God who became one of us to lay down his life for your guilt and shame and rebellion against God to set us free for life with God. And the question is meant to say that you and I must respond in relationship with Jesus. We have to devote ourselves to prayer and worship and service and trusting and righteous choices and all those things so that we know who Jesus is by experience, the Messiah, the one Lord and Savior. 
And Jesus is saying here that true faith will accept Jesus on God's terms, not on your own terms. Way back in 1970, on the old Dick Cavett show of all places, this struggle surfaced when the two guests on the couch were Jane Fonda and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Jane Fonda says what many believed at the time, and many believe even today, that I decide for myself about who Jesus is. Michael Ramsey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, asked her, is Jesus Christ the true and final revelation of God? She says, that's a question. And Jane Fonda answered, well, for some people. And the Archbishop answered back, well, either he is or he isn't. And he was right. Because we don't get to decide who Jesus is. We don't have a say in who Jesus is. Faith is not my personal preference when it comes to God. And that's what Peter experiences with what Jesus reveals here. It's Peter who confesses, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And that's what they've all been waiting for. You are what the world needs, he confesses. You are from God, anointed by God for a God-given task. You're God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises to love the world. Peter is saying, you are God with us. He is their forgiveness, their life, their salvation. That's what he's saying. At this place, where all feel that the world is not only broken, but in rebellion against God. Here, Peter announces that Jesus is the one who will subdue all other powers until one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is God over all. Jesus is that worthy of our hope. And our faith will trust that Jesus alone is the Messiah, the God who saves. And my life is measured and filled by that grace alone. That's what Peter is confessing in his head. But Jesus stops Peter right there and says, don't tell anyone. We say, well, why would he say that? Because while they have some ideas in their heads about how Jesus will do this, they don't really get it. They aren't willing yet to trust the cross. That for Jesus to deliver this rebellious world, he will have to bear the evil. And his disciples will have to bear it also. And this they are not ready for. Watch. Jesus reveals that the heart and character of God is pictured by a cross. And he's saying, okay, if you know I'm the Messiah, God with you to save you, this is how I will give you God's love. In verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And then he must be killed, and after three days rise again. Peter refuses to believe this 
about Jesus. Just when Jesus is showing them, just what Peter knows in his mind is true, that Jesus is the Messiah, when Jesus speaks of the cross then, and of crucifixion, then Peter rebukes Jesus for talking like that, causing Jesus to respond, get behind me, Satan. So you see what's going on? Simon Peter is fitting Jesus into life, his life on his terms, confining talk of God to thoughts in his head, his ideas. Simon Peter has his own ideas about Jesus and about the Messiah and about what that means. And now what Jesus is saying he must do? Well, this is not what Peter meant. Jesus is not meeting Peter's expectations. Verse 32, Jesus spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See, here's our point of contact with the Bible story. How often haven't we approached God with our own expectations, our own human ideas about Jesus? Yes, Jesus is the Savior. He is the long-awaited Lord of all. Jesus embodies the love of God for you. It's easy to keep that notion in our minds. And then we decide the happy life we're entitled to from God. But Jesus reveals salvation at the gates of hell, outside of Caesarea Philippi. To say the grace of God is given and received in broken, rebellious places by acts of suffering and service and sacrifice. God's grace isn't going to come to us through our human expectations, it's going to happen by sacrifice, by suffering, by the cross and by resurrection. It's going to happen by God's grace, and not our human reason and ability. It comes as a gift. It's received by trust. And Peter isn't having it. He rebukes Jesus. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. It was Satan who had his own ideas about God and fell from grace and brought all creation down with him. Jesus says, Peter, don't go there. In fact, Jesus says, Peter, this is why I told you don't tell anyone because you don't know yet. And the way you're going to find out, the way you're going to really know me, the way we are going to really experience God with us is by getting behind him and following him. Following him to the cross. That's how we will know. True faith isn't just knowing some things about God in your head. Faith must take the shape of Jesus and his cross. A wholehearted trust that looks like this each day. Jesus will break down the gates of hell 
by suffering its worst. Only by sacrifice will new life come. And this is precisely where we experience God with us. Right there, the love and power of Christ's cross and resurrection become real at the place no one wants to be at, at an evil place, the place of the cross, which is a place of confession and forgiveness, a place of shared sacrifice, shared burdens, sharing in the loss of another. When loss or trouble come into our lives, and everything within us doubts, or loses hope, and grasps for anything that will take away the pain, Jesus is right there. Because he's the God of the cross. He takes it all up in his nail-scarred hands. I am with you always, he promises. And his promise is resurrection, a new life. Not of your making, but of his making. So when Jesus then says, the words that form our memory verse for this month, you know it yet? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. When Jesus says that, he's not being cruel or heartless. He's promising that when we follow Jesus into those places of trouble or pain, he will draw us close and make us new. That's how salvation comes to us. Faith participates in the dying and rising with Christ. Listen to the Master. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. That's where we meet God. That's how evil is faced and beaten. That's how we know the truth. When the occasion of our limits becomes the place for his unlimited grace. So the question, who do you say I am, is not an invitation to make Jesus into whatever you want him to be for you. But to receive grace. To be open to the revelation. To be found by him. See, Stephen Evans says, the Christian who has doubts about her faith should not necessarily see that as a sign of weakness. The test as to whether we have genuine faith in Christ is not whether we have any intellectual doubt. The real test is whether we are willing to obey Christ to act as his follower in spite of our doubt. And many times, that is how we come to see the limitations of our doubts. To recognize, not that my faith is riddled with doubts, but that my doubts are riddled with faith. 
for Jesus has met us at the cross. What does that mean? What does that look like? Following Jesus, taking up our cross, what does that look like? Well, the New Testament shows us over and over again a pattern to faith that leads to resurrection, like in Philippians 2, starting at verse 6. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Because Jesus has come, because Jesus is God come in the flesh, he doesn't live for himself to gain the happiness of the world. Rather, instead, he makes himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He becomes obedient to the will of God to the point of the cross. But that was not the end. He was raised and resurrected Lord in the highest place. This is God. This is God taking the God's very being, human death. This is what God looks like. This is where we encounter God. So there, in our burdens, in our losses, in any sort of spiritual or human mortality or limitation, There God gathers us up in grace and makes life new, preparing us, giving us resurrection, eternal life. Instead of me setting the terms and defining God for myself so that I live life my way and fit God into what I want, I trust Jesus and follow him into sacrifice, into suffering, into service, into shared burdens, and the confession of sin, to let him make my life new for him. That is faith, formed by the cross. Faith lives freely and in hope, and even joyfully in this pattern. Because Jesus is the Messiah, the one who died and rose again, Don't choose despair in your hard season. Though God is not the one who sends evil or pain, God takes it up with you to show the Lord's real self, real presence, real grace to you. So take up that cross that is put before you, giving yourself to sharing in that burden, addressing the injustice in the neighborhood, sacrificing for the sake of Jesus in another's life, doing what is right even though it costs you. It looks like you are losing your life. But because Jesus is the resurrected Lord, you will gain a new life that you could never have achieved on your own. Your life belonging with the Lord in God's good and joyful love. Because there Jesus finds you and holds you in his love. And so an old Peter, nearing his death, and he would die by being crucified also, 
an unjust, a trumped-up charge. He would die crucified upside down for Jesus. Nearing that end that he knew was coming, he wrote, he wrote to his friends. In his letter he wrote, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. I don't wish hardship on anyone, nor does our shepherd and our great and good friend Jesus. But the loving power of the cross is big enough to bless you through the worst. And we've experienced that together in our church family. And our church family are those who have gone through the war, who have witnessed as missionaries against all kinds of obstacles, who have cried in graveyards, who have suffered broken relationships, who had to take abrupt turns and unwanted changes of course in their professions and their careers who have had seasons of loneliness, who have confessed failure. And faith all of a sudden wasn't just words or concepts, but the only way left to take up this life. It was participation in dying and rising with Christ. Andrew Root tells about a youth group that was led by the Holy Spirit to the cross of Jesus, to take up their cross. It happened when one of their classmates wound up fighting for her life in an emergency room of a hospital. And all they could do was wait there in the waiting room. But then they figured out that they're waiting, that in that waiting room they had choices that they could make, choices of faith, to truly pray, to the Heavenly Father and trust the mercy of God. To help their friend's family in their suffering. To be there together and make sure no one was alone through this. They could have walked away. They were all busy young, young people. They had lots to do, plenty with school and other life responsibilities. But now faith wasn't just something in their head, something they understood about Jesus but it was something you did. So they decided to take up this cross, to share in the burden, even though no one could fix this, no one could make it right. They could find what is right by meeting Jesus at this cross, the suffering and the pain and the mystery. And through it all, guess what? They began to share their own stories of struggle, of being unsure, of finding it hard to pray and to wait. And then they began to figure out who they really were. I guess we really are God's children. I guess we really do belong totally to Jesus. And one summed it up saying, we're finding out who we are by placing the stories of the Bible next to our own experiences 
And it's good for me to know the mystery that made me. So take up your cross and follow him. That's a real faith. We finally see what the cross really is. And we can really believe in his love.